Welcome to 5 Things About, I'm Chris Hatzis. 5 Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions, ideas, people and places. Today we look at 5 things about housing affordability or unaffordability. It's a hot topic at the moment. How many smashed avocados can a millennial forego for a housing deposit? What's driving the crisis? Can we call it a crisis? And what has negative gearing and capital gains got to do with it? In this episode, Tamara Heath from the Faculty of Business and Economics chats with University of Melbourne Associate Professor of Finance, Greg Schwann, about Melbourne's housing market and what young people can do to break into it. It has always been the great Aussie dream to own your own home, but if we believe the headlines, the dream is getting more out of reach for young Melburnians. We talked to Associate Professor Greg Schwann from the University of Melbourne's Faculty of Business and Economics about the pressure in Melbourne's property market and if there is any hope for the future for young house buyers. Can you tell us what has happened to housing prices in Melbourne? Housing in Melbourne is severely unaffordable. The 2017 Demographia International Housing Affordability Survey reports that Melbourne's median multiple is 9.5. The median multiple is the ratio of the median house price to the median income in the city you're dealing with. And this means, uh, 9.5, that it takes nine and a half years of the average wage in Melbourne to uh, purchase a house. And that's just buying it without any interest involved at all. So obviously, if you think about buying it with a mortgage, you're talking about a much, much longer time. Now... Figures such as the median multiple are not perfect. They have some limitations. One is that housing is not controlled for quality in any way. So when you compare across cities, you really are talking about housing of vastly different qualities in some case. And the other is it doesn't take into any account of household circumstances. Uh, For example, double-income families versus single-income families, families with kids and families without kids. But... At 9.5, I don't think there's any question at all that Melbourne is severely unaffordable. Can you give us a historical context? What was the median multiplier a few years back? Go all the way back to 2002 was somewhere around 5. Today, we were uh, at 9.5, so you can see that we've almost doubled in that period of time. Now, it's, it's moved up and down a little bit, but we're still way, way above where we used to be. Is housing affordability worse in Melbourne than anywhere else in Australia or the world? Well, Melbourne is the sixth most unaffordable city in the world. However, when you take a wider perspective, five of the capital cities in Australia are considered as severely unaffordable. Sydney is the second most unaffordable housing area in the world. If you take Australia as a whole, Australia is the third most unaffordable country following Hong Kong, which is double Australia's median multiple, behind New Zealand. So that would be the Auckland house price. What's led to this situation? There are a number of contributing factors, both on the demand side and on the supply side. On the demand side, we can't ever forget that Melbourne is a rapidly growing city. Last year, it was the most rapidly growing capital city in Australia. This growth is on top of a whole decade of rapid growth, although maybe not the top one of the year. And this just means there's more people bidding on the same houses, forcing prices up. We have historically low interest rates right now, and that has two effects. One effect is that, of course, more people can afford a mortgage than they used to be. 
but also in a financial sense, it upvalues the flow of services from the house. And so that boosts prices. So you get a, a double hit from low interest rates. We've seen with rising prices that a lot of investors have entered the market. And this is investors looking at the returns and the risks of different investments, and housing looks pretty good to them. And this is on top of a very liberal capital gain regime and the possibility of negative gearing in Australia, which has driven this. And I think the last one most people don't really think of is that we're also at the same time now getting a lot of people retiring or at least approaching retirement. And so what they're doing is they're having to take their pensions and they have to turn them into income producing assets. And, and housing is, has been a long favorite for people doing that. Of course, to do this, it's better to do it before you retire because then you can maximize your tax benefits. But the fact is you have this yet another group looking to purchase income property, and this is all pumping up the demand side. So lots of demand factors out there. On the supply side, I think there's one big one, and, and that's the supply of land. Land use and development regulation locks up a lot of residential land that could be used for development. And this, of course, means we have a scarcity in the market for the ability to build new houses. You mentioned negative gearing. It's a scary word. Can you just explain a little bit more what negative gearing and perhaps the capital gains tax actually mean in the housing market? Negative gearing in its simplest form is the ability to deduct all your mortgage payments and all the uh, depreciation deductions on a property so that it will actually exceed the rent that you're generating from the property. And therefore, you can transfer the unused portion of the deduction onto your labor income. And that's pure and simple negative gearing. It works with capital gains because if you're not getting a return to property through income, remember you're not making enough rent here, you have to make it somewhere else so that when you have strong ability to get capital gains, that feeds into the negative gearing scenario, allows you to purchase the house, maintain a, a solid return, and take advantage of all the tax that is available. In Australia, the 50% reduction in capital gains has really fueled that one pretty high because anywhere else you would pay your full capital gains tax on the full amount. Here we have 50% and that, that's giving even more incentive to uh, use negative gearing. Many countries only allow you to take deductions for financial assets against financial assets, for property assets against property assets, for deductions against labor income from labor income. Australia hasn't gone that route. It's one big bucket, and we're allowed to do that. So is there a better way? No. <laughs> Government grants have often been seen as one way to help first-home buyers. Are they a good idea? They're certainly good politics, um, but they're not very good economics. What it just does is it increases the demand for houses that first-home buyers could buy. Uh, and so you're pumping up the demand, and this is going to be reflected in higher prices. If we look at past increases in the first homeowner's grant in various jurisdictions in Australia, the evidence is in the short run, the value of the grant is entirely capitalized into the house price. And so if the grant is, say, $20,000 saving, the house price goes up by $20,000 and the uh, first homeowner is no further ahead than when the whole thing began. So what happens on the long run is whether that extra price gets more supply. And there I don't think the evidence is very strong that it does. 
it, we would wish it would be that this would induce a lot more developers to produce housing, but the limitations on the supply of land are what are binding here. So if not grants, what else can our politicians be doing to help? I really have a lot of sympathy for governments. Everything they do uh, to make it easier for first home buyers to get into the market ends up being priced in. And so their compassion is really self-defeating. And, and I guess the moral I would say is just don't do anything. Be like a doctor. In the first instance, cause no harm. So is there hope? Is the situation going to get any better for young home buyers? Unfortunately, there's no quick fixes here. Ultimately, the answer is more supply, and not just supply in the urban periphery of Melbourne, but increased supply throughout all of Melbourne. The current Melbourne planning scheme is heading in this direction of densification, but its impact on prices will take a very long time to reach maturity. On the demand side, it be tempting to say maybe an increase in interest rates would slow things up. Uh, and it certainly does look like uh, the interest rates will be rising in the medium term. But there's a very real concern that this would not be a great policy simply because it might damage financial stability in Australia if it causes people to uh, go into delinquency and we have fire sales on housing prices. Uh, this will depress prices, but it will also uh, lead to problems with bank solvency. Greg, as an expert in this area, if you were trying to buy your first home right now, what would you do? My students often ask me this question, and my advice is really more common sense than it is finance or economics. What I advise them is to take the heat out of the choice. Housing is both a consumption choice and investment choice, and it's important that people get trying to get into the market think about that in two separate compartments. On the consumption side, buy what you need, not what you want. Your parents and your grandparents did this. They bought smaller or older or further out, and they took time to improve the quality or move to a better place, eventually ending up with a very nice property in many instances, but they didn't start there. So aim a little lower, I guess, is the first thing I would suggest. The other thing I would suggest is to calculate the holding costs of owning or renting a property. Pick the tenure that is cheapest, owning or renting. Why pay more? And the last thing I'll say is if you're going to purchase a property, don't just walk up to the auction and start bidding. You need to spend the time to get to know the market you're buying in. Among other things, you need to know what is a good price for a house in this market. What is it that people value in properties in this market? Certainly, I'm not a native to Melbourne, but when I purchased a house, I sought professional advice, and I was, remember once we were about to bid on a property, it was a, it was a double unit, and this was one side of it, and uh, the valuer I spoke to said, don't buy that one. Double units in this neighborhood may go well now, but they're not what people really want. If you're going to spend that kind of money, spend it on a single-family home in the neighborhood. So be a little bit savvy. If millennials are being frozen out of the property market, what's going to happen to the future? What does that mean when they're, say, 60? What I will say is that the Australian superannuation system really is based on having a home. So we fast forward to 60 and they still don't have a property. They're in a bit of a problem. The super system in Australia is based on the premise that you actually 
have a property that you've paid off. And so therefore, in a sense, you're living free from outlay. You also then have your super account and your government pension. And the whole package together is what underpins retirement in Australia. It's often suggested that one way that aspiring homeowners can get into the market is to buy a property further out, stop looking in the inner city and look in the outer suburbs. Is that a good idea? In part it is. What it allows homeowners or prospective homeowners to do is to get on the property ladder because with the lower price further out, they can actually get a mortgage, which they couldn't closer into the city. So they're able to accumulate wealth in the property, which then they can trade up and move in in the future. If you were to stay there long term, there shouldn't be much different. Economic theory suggests that all the change in value, the difference between inner city housing and outer city housing will be just the capitalized value of your transportation costs. The issue is that in the long run, this will all be priced in anyway. So the decrease in housing prices will be offset by the increase in transportation costs and inconvenience. So, Greg, there's a lot of concern and speculation that Melbourne's in a housing price bubble at the moment. Would you say that's true? That's actually a hard question to answer because to understand whether you're in a bubble or not, you have to understand what the fundamental price of housing would be. And I've already commented on the fact that there's a lot of really hardcore economic demand and supply drivers forcing up prices here, and that would be the fundamental price. However, Even setting that aside, empirical work suggests that we're beyond the fundamental price right now. And so in that sense, we are bubble-ish. And I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, Greg. It's really appreciated. I enjoyed it. That was five things about housing affordability in Melbourne. Producers were Tamara Heath and Claudia Hooper. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Edited by Arch Cuthbertson, Claudia Hooper and Tamara Heath. Five Things About is a training podcast created by Dr. Andy Horvath. Still curious? Head on over to our big sister podcast, Eavesdrop on Experts, for more. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.